on so that it actually works. That will make all the difference. It's good to see you here today. Welcome to everybody who's brand new with us. Great to have you. As I said last week, come to this church once and we count you as a regular. So it's good to have all the regulars here today. Um, I was eight years old the first time that I walked through a minefield. Um, I was on Cub Scout camp. I was eight years old. And uh, we'd had this wide game that uh, had us go through the forest, uh, a, a really thick bush. We had to navigate with um, a compass and a map. We had to cross an estuary, and so we had to build a raft out of poles and ropes and uh, inner tubes. And then we had uh, to carry one of our team members who was wounded, so we had to create a stretcher. And the last obvious obstacle before we reached the end of the game was uh, a minefield. At the other end of the minefield, there was a, a buried ammunition box full of the treasure, which was enemy secrets. Um, I think actually my father designed the game. It was probably what he did in his military training. But it was amazing as eight-year-olds. It was so great. And uh, so between us and the treasure was this beach. Uh, and on the sandy beach, there were little mounds. Um, and that was the minefield. The mounds, of course, were not real mines. They were balloons buried in the sand. And uh, we had to carry our teammate across the sand. And we, of course, assumed that all of the balloons were buried under the hills. Not true. Some of our friends got blown up and didn't make it. Blew up the balloons anyway. Hopefully that wasn't too triggering for anybody. Well, as we approach the topic of men and women this morning in the Bible, I'm aware that we're navigating a minefield. Um, and as a society, we've had a public discussion for the last 50 years uh, about issues of male and female equality and the roles of men and women in society and, and issues of gendered abuse and oppression and sexual predation by men against women and more recently, gender identity and confusion. Um, these are issues where we've made some grave mistakes as society and sadly, we've done the same in the church. And so some of these issues... Um, are in the Bible text that we're looking at today. Um, they're not exactly landmines, but they are issues that will trigger some people. And, uh, and they're issues that I want to tread gently around as we get to the buried treasure that's in Genesis chapter 2. Um, because it is what God says about men and women. God actually says that together men and women are very good. We're creatures made in His very own image and um, we're created as the perfect complement for one another. And so that's the picture I want us to understand. That's the picture I want us to get to, to explore and to aspire to um, as we seek to be transformed by God's Word and recreated by His Holy Spirit. So um, why don't we pray that God would give us true spiritual insight as we open this topic this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are aware as we approach this topic that it's an issue of particular sensitivity. And so we pray, Father, You would show us what is good about men and women and that you would show us your creation ideals. And Father, give me wise words. And as a church, teach us to be wise and helpful in the ways that we relate and speak on this topic. Um, guard us from division and bring us to unity through the reconciling work of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So uh, just to let you know where we're going, we're in Genesis chapters 1 to 11. We've been in this for a little while now. Uh, this study that we're calling the foundations, the foundations of what we understand about God and ourselves as humans and how we're to relate to Him and how we're to relate to the earth. And uh, as we go on, we're going to read through to the end of chapter 11. We probably won't read every single word. Um, but right now, uh, what we want to do today is to understand the ideal of what men and women are meant to be like as God has designed us to be, particularly the relationship 
between men and women. Um, and so to lead us into that concept, Genesis 2 kind of takes over from chapter 1 um, and tells the creation story from a different perspective. Um, chapter 1 was cosmic and structural. God was forming and, and putting things out like stars in the sky and then he was filling. But when you come to chapter 2, we're drawn into this close-up um, experience of creation as if it was unfolding before us in real time. And so chapter 2 compared to chapter 1, it's very intimate. You can almost smell the dust um, of the world that's not yet seen rain. You know that smell of when rain drops onto dust? Petrichor is the name of that. If you're a wine buff, that's something you look for in wines, that petrichor smell. Um, so you get that smell almost, and then streams come up and they water the ground. And, and we witness God forming man from the dust of the ground and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And before our eyes, that dustiness of creation becomes this lush garden full of um, trees that bear fruit. And then there's rivers that flow out and there's gold and treasures and it's very exciting. So let me read it again for you and just, um, just to, to, to give you that second perspective on chapter 2. So this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. And there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man that he'd formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food and in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Abishon. It winds through the entire land of Hevila where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. And there's aromatic resin and onyx there as well. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. And it winds through the entire land of Cush. And the name of the third is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth is the Euphrates. Eden is enticing. It's promising, it's full of potential and it's begging us to explore its riches and you read Genesis 2 and we're brought into this garden to experience its goodness for ourselves. It is good. Do you remember that was the refrain of chapter 1? It is good. And that's why chapter 2 verse 18 comes as a surprise. The Lord God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Uh, for me, this is the verse that jumped right out in chapter 2. Um, something in creation was not good. What does it mean? How do we interpret verse 18? Well, this leads to my first big idea, which is that aloneness is not good. So as we're drawn into the drama of this section, God has been the one directing the action. Um, God speaks and, and God puts the man in the garden. And it's God who makes a statement that it's not good for the man to be alone. Again, why is that? See, after all, God is there with the man, at least in some way. So the man has God. Shouldn't that be enough to prevent his aloneness? And then there's the animals in verse 19. God brings all of the wild animals and all the birds and all the livestock. And uh, he brings them to the man so the man can give them names. So the man is surrounded by other creatures. Shouldn't the animals be enough to prevent his aloneness? 
Maybe he needed a dog. Or for the cat people, perhaps he needed a cat. Maybe that would have done it. But verse 20 ends with a commentary that even with all of the animals on earth, there is no suitable helper for Adam. And by the way, did you notice in verse 20, um, this is for the first time the man is called Adam. Um, He now has a name just like all of the other creatures have a name. Uh, They're known by the names that Adam gave to them. But Adam, God has given him his name. Uh, And his name, Adam, it comes from the Hebrew word for earth or ground, Adama, because Adam was made from the earth. But come back to this problem of verse 18. God says it's not good for the man to be alone. And nothing else on earth is a suitable helper for Adam. Even the intimacy of relationship with God is not enough to ease Adam's aloneness. And that's where we come back to this idea of being made in the image of God. So we said uh, even a few weeks ago that at creation, we see the faintest glimmers of the Trinitarian God, the God who is not alone. And of course, as we read further in the Bible, um, God reveals clearly that He's one God in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so our God is a God who exists in community. Our God is not alone. And so when God makes mankind in His image, we shouldn't be surprised that He makes us not to be alone. Um, God is in community, and He makes us for community. And the English poet John Donne famously said, "'No man is an island.'" We're not made for solitary, uh, for solitude, sorry. And that's why solitary confinement is arguably the most dehumanizing form of torture. It sends people crazy because we're made for community. We're made for life in community. We're made for other people. Uh, even at a biological level, we need the DNA of two other people just to be created, don't we? Just to be born. So Genesis 2 makes this powerful statement about the human need for relationship. We're created as relational beings in the image of our relational God. So what should those relationships look like? Well, that brings us to big idea number two, a suitable helper. So the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And there's two words in the original language that help us understand what God is talking about. First is helper, and the second is the word for suitable. Um, suitable in this case, it, it means something corresponding to, but also the opposite of the man. So God wants to create somebody for Adam who will uh, be a helper in the work of ruling over creation, and it will be somebody who's like him, um, somebody who corresponds to him, um, so not an animal. But it's also going to be somebody who's opposite of him. It, it will be Adam's other half, the other half that is missing. And so again, we're drawn intimately into God's creative process. We watch as God causes the man to fall into a deep sleep and he takes one of the man's ribs and he closes up the place with flesh and then God makes a woman from the rib that he'd taken out of the man and God brings her to the man. Uh, Much has been written about the symbolism uh, behind the way that God created the woman. Um, The word for rib can be translated as side Um, And so Henry Blochet, he says um, that Eve coming from Adam's side, it means that she is his alter ego. Um, Augustine took the idea of bones and flesh for symbols of the strength and softness of males and females in their character. Interesting. Karl Barth, he sees this as an allegory for Christ, whose wounded side generates his bride, the church. That's pretty special, that one. 
And maybe you've heard these interpretations and others. What do we make of them? Well, I think the best commentary actually comes from Adam himself. Adam says in verse 23, he says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Did you notice these are the first words spoken by a human in the Bible? Um, Adam has called the animals by name, but these are the first recorded ones. And they're not just words, it's poetry. Adam spontaneously bursts out in poetry as he beholds this wondrous creature that God has brought to him and brought out of him. She's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, he says. That is, she is my family, she is my blood relative. Adam names her woman because she's been taken out of man. Even our English words, man and woman, have the, the common root together. Well, it's the same in Hebrew. Just like Adam's name came from the fact that he was taken out of the dirt, out of the ground. Um, the woman's name uh, in Hebrew, Isha, um, echoes the, the word for man, which is Ish. So that's where we get the name Isha, uh, Aisha from. Uh, it means woman. And so there's this beautiful picture of complementarity painted here. The, the man and the woman, they are alike, and yet they're also different from one another. Genesis 1.27 reminds us that they're both created equally in the image of God. And together their codependence and their mutuality and their, their oppositeness, but also their sameness, that solves the problem of man being alone. They're made for one another. And they're made for unity, even though they're separate and diverse. Unity in diversity. And so Adam and Eve are the first community of humans. Adam is delighted with the woman and she with him. And in verse 24, they enjoy this relationship in which they become one flesh. Um, they become a new family with one another in marriage. And the word wife is used. Did you notice back in verse 22 that God brings the woman to the man, just like a father brings his daughter to be a bride, um, to be married and gives her away. Man and the woman, they're naked and they feel no shame. And this is what God wants us to understand about the creation of man and woman in his image. This is the very goodness of male and female together. Um, this is the ideal, the, the, this perfect standard for human relationships in the good order of creation. Now, sadly, we know that the picture in Genesis 2 is far from the reality that we see around us. And this is where I want to hold up the goodness um, of maleness and femaleness in a world that's gotten this wrong in so many different ways, uh, including Christians who've used these passages to uh, subjugate women. So by the time we get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul references these verses in Genesis 2 to talk about order in creation, and particularly man being created before woman and, and implying some sort of authority of men over women. Of course, we read Ephesians 5 where the, the husband is the head over the woman and, and she should... Um, submit to him and so as we read those whatever you think about them and the meaning is hotly debated historically the reality is that many men particularly christian men have used this idea of the order in creation to diminish the dignity of women or worse but when you look at genesis 2 that diminishing or demeaning attitude that subjugation, you just can't see it in Genesis 2 at all. There's nothing demeaning in the woman being created as Adam's helper. And so actually, we did this in my Bible study this week. As you look through the rest of the, test the Old Testament, um, there's 
the word help or helper is used 21 times, and 15 of those occasions, it's used for, the, for God being the helper of humans. It's amazing. God is our helper. Um, and so is God demeaned by being the helper of humans? No, actually, he's to be honoured and praised and thanked uh, for all the blessing that he is as a gift of a helper. We esteem God for being our helper. And so we're not to think of the woman as some kind of subjugated house help, uh, nor is there any disdain intended in this created order between men and women. After all, Jesus himself is created and he's equal with God. And then in Philippians 2, we see him humble himself to take on the nature of a servant according to his father's will and he becomes human he even subjects himself to death on the cross is jesus demeaned by this act of humility well no rather god actually takes him and exalts him to the highest place because of it so in the economy of human relationships we've we've made authority and submission this power imbalance we've made it this kind of nuclear arms race between men and women of, of who's got more power but in god's economy there's no such thing See, the, the Trinity is our example. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're equally God in nature, but they perform different functions and they have an ordered relationship and yet there's no loss of dignity in any of them. And so it is to be for God's people the same thing. Um, as we get recreated in the image of Christ, God actually wants us to recreate our relationships in the church in this same way. And that's why we, we read just a few weeks ago that in the church, all of the parts of the body are to work together. There's no part that has less dignity than others. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, it says, if there is a part that's less dignified, we're to treat it with more honour. Less honourable, we treat it with more honour. All of this is to say that in Genesis chapter 2, we're presented with this model relationship between a man and a woman. And the relationship is very good. Now, this is a relationship that gives honour and dignity to each participant, and it's a relationship that in some way mirrors the relationship between the persons of the Trinity. And Matthew Henry sums it up like this. He says, The woman was made out of the rib, out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved i like that now i know that we're just getting to know one another but um, i've got a little confession to make some truth that you need to know about me and that is this um it's my favorite icing flavor um uh, this is the wrong picture actually um my favorite icing is chocolate icing on a chocolate cake so if you ever need to know that's the answer um and you can tell me later what yours are uh, but as we close our time today i just want to add a little icing on the cake of what we've been thinking about this morning which is the idea that we're made for relationships. And I want to think for a moment about marriage because we often think, well, that must be where it's all headed. Now, the reality is that many of us will marry, but some of us won't. Um, some of our relationships end in divorce, some of our marriages. And for almost all the rest, well, they end in widowhood. That's just the reality. And so many people who are married today will actually be single again at some stage. And I know some of you know that close up and it's a sobering idea it might make us feel like we will all end up alone but the wonderful story of the bible is that we will not end up alone see the god who exists in community has a plan to bring us all into a community that will last forever 
And so our aloneness on earth, and, and even married people feel alone at times, our aloneness on earth will be swept up in this new relationship, um, this perfect relationship in the new heavens and the new earth, this perfect community, this perfect harmony and this perfect union as we meet together around the throne of the Lamb. Because one of the pictures of the New Testament is a wedding feast where Christ is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. And we read that in Ephesians 5 just before. And so the marriage of Adam and Eve and every human marriage, in fact, they are good and they're God-ordained uh, and they're wonderful. But in comparison to that eternal relationship of Christ and his people, all marriages pale by comparison. Our marriages are a shadow of what is to come. They're like a, a kind of a, a pointer to the even better relationship that we'll all experience around the throne one day. And that means for any of us who feel alone in the world today, you are not alone. We have a God who's already drawn us into relationship with Him through Christ, and more than that, who's placed us into a spiritual community, a, a church. And it's a new family here at the church as, as we strive to live out the ideals of Genesis 2. We're not joined by bone and flesh, but we're united in the body of Christ. And we're a community who cares for the widow and the orphan so that nobody is left alone. As individuals recreated in the image of Christ, as a church, we're in the business of recreating the goodness of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and all the relationships that we see there. And um, that's the ideal. I know we're not perfect, but together we can make this a reality more and more as time goes on. Um, it's the sort of church I want us to be. Hope you want to be that too. Because as we let the Holy Spirit recreate us, we can actually see God's will happening here on earth. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing picture of your goodness, the way that you've created us for one another, for relationships. We pray, Father, for deep and fulfilling relationships here at church. We pray that you would graft us into the body of Christ to know that he is the bridegroom and we are his bride and that one day we'll be together around the throne forever. For those of us who feel alone, Heavenly Father, give us friendships and relationships through Christ that are deeply nurturing. We pray, Father, we'd have an eye for the widow and the orphan and any others who feel alone. Heavenly Father, help us to recreate the goodness of Genesis 2 as we uh, seek to live in godly marriages and godly relationships, drawing people into your kingdom for the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen.